Computer, initialize Holosuite. Holosuite Media. and welcome to Random Trek Review, the podcast where we analyze, discuss, and review randomly selected Star Trek episodes. My name is Matt, and I've appointed my good friend Andrew to lead our new business venture into uncharted territory. Now, Andrew, you got to be beware of your rivals, though. They may want to take over your position, and uh, who knows what could happen. Uh, how are you doing? I know, and you know what? It's like right in the midst of the uh, festive holidays. So, you know, with Christmas only a couple of days away, I think maybe it's only fitting that we are talking uh, capitalism and Ferengis and Deep Space Nine. More importantly, Festivus is only one day away. Uh, <laughs> that is so, true. Uh, so maybe uh, so at some point in this podcast, we'll uh, air some grievances. Uh, exactly. I got a lot <laughs> but, of problems with this episode, and it's going to hear all about it in this podcast. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So if we're a little bit on edge, it's because we're in the Festivus spirit uh, today here on RTR. Uh, as we uh, often do, Andrew, let's just rewind a little bit and go back to the end of our uh, our last podcast. And uh, tell me how I did with my uh, my recall of the Nagus, which is the episode we'll be talking about on this podcast. And uh, give me a rating out of five homework pads. Yes, five homework pads, which are due tomorrow. Oh, no! Really good. I think that uh, when you've got a title like The Nagus, it's pretty clear that Wallace Shawn is going to show up and you dropped that name and you knew that this was kind of the first time that he pops up and we get a lot of the Ferengi traditions and some of the culture, a lot of the the early growth of the Ferengi as a, a species in Star Trek really starts with this episode, which I think that you nailed. Uh, the one thing that you kind of missed slash kind of jumbled was just that this is the one where Quark gets appointed uh, the, the Grand Nagus ship, and it's all tied into this elaborate scheme where... Uh, he's going to fake his own death and is going to test his son to see whether or not he is ready for that position. And that was kind of the only spot that I feel like you missed. I, I mean, I think you got everything else kind of perfect. I would say four homework pads out of five. But I mean, if you have a, a stringent argument against, I guess maybe I could be coerced. It is the holiday seasons after all. Well, no, that was a pretty important part of the episode. And I don't think I quite remembered that uh, exactly so I think four out of five is uh, something I can live with uh, even though this is an episode that I think I've seen a lot more than some others but uh, it's a pretty uh, I'll take four homework pads out of five now this is of course uh, season one I cannot believe when you look at some of these dates this is March 21st 1993 I was eight years old when this came out it's just why actually I was seven years old uh, when this came out and uh, it's just one of those things man like time flies and although I have probably seen this episode a couple of times like you as well it is a little strange to you know be watching stuff from you know almost 20 years ago yeah well, we may be dating ourselves a little bit as we go ahead here now uh, yeah this is from uh, very early uh, Deep Space Nine's from season one episode 11 Originally aired on March 21st, 1993. It guest stars Max Grodenchik as Rom, Lou Wagner as Crax, Barry Gordon as Nava, Lee Ehrenberg as Grawl, Aaron Eisenberg as Nog, Tiny Ron as Mayherdu, and your favorite Andrew, Wallace Shawn as Zek. Uh, interestingly, the story was by uh, David Livingston. Uh, teleplay was written by Iris Stephen Bear, and this was directed by David Livingston, and this is our, our second David Livingston-directed episode in a row, which is not surprising because he's done so many. Uh, just in case you didn't get a chance to fire up your streaming service of choice and watch the Nagus in the last couple weeks, I'll give you a quick synopsis uh, just so you know what we're talking about. 
Quark is very surprised that Grand Nagus Zek, the leader of the Ferengi Alliance, arrives in his bar and demands the use of his holosuite. After a lengthy stay, he joins Quark and Rom for dinner and asks Quark to host a trade conference to discuss business opportunities in the Gamma Quadrant. Quark is only too happy to oblige the Nagus, but is shocked when Zek names him the new Grand Nagus, much to the chagrin of the other Ferengi. Zek dies later on while he's debating where to take his first vacation in decades. Meanwhile, Nog and Jake deal with some difficulties with their friendship after Nog is pulled out of school on, out of the school on the station. They overcome their differences and Jake clandestinely helps Nog learn to read in his spare time after school. Quark begins to settle into his new role as Grand Nagus, but after an implied death threat, he narrowly escapes being killed by a Ferengi locator bomb. Odo investigates, but is unable to discover who the would-be killer is until it is too late. Crax, Zek's disgruntled son, and Rom turn out to be the culprits and again attempt to kill Quark by luring him into an airlock. Before they can blow Quark out into space, Zek shocks everyone, alive and well, and demands that they release Quark. It turns out to be a test to see if Crax is ready to take over his, as Nagus, a test he fails miserably. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of interesting stories about the first time I saw this other than I, I had it on a VHS tape, so I watched it probably more than usual. But other than that, nothing really special about this one for me. And I don't think for you either. Is that... No, the only thing that I would say is kind of interesting about it was that I'm pretty sure that I watched Princess Bride for the first time within a week of watching this episode because I very specifically remember Wallace Shawn from that. And have you ever seen that movie, The Princess Bride? Oh, oh yes, many times. So, yes. yeah, and, and he plays kind of like a very famous scene in it. And then when this episode came on, it was kind of like special guest star, Wallace Shawn. I was like, hey, I know who that is. Um, and, I mean, Star Trek, I think, is probably the ultimate show for picking out celebrities and like where do I know that guy from and oh that's the guy from this thing but uh, I do remember seeing Wallace Shawn and being very excited because I was like oh yeah it's like from Princess Bride you know that was such a, a funny scene that was such a funny character I hope that we get something similar in uh, in this episode and uh, well you'll have to wait and see whether I thought we got that or not yeah I've seen that movie like numerous times it's uh it's one that I kind of go back to quite often. And yeah, he was he played a very memorable role in that movie, to say the least. Uh, some interesting background bits here. The first thing which I mentioned off the top here is that the story for this episode was actually pitched by David Livingston, who is a director. And I feel like it maybe is kind of an unusual thing for a director to go to the writers and say, hey, guys, here's an idea. At this point in time, 100% yes. Um, by today's standards, I do kind of feel like, you know, like J.J. Abrams is, he kind of does that a lot, right? Where he's the director, but he's also the person that's writing it. Um, also, like, doesn't Alex Kurtzman sometimes direct stuff? Am I off the... Am I off the, the mark for, no, he does. on him? So, he does, I mean, yeah. we, we do see it kind of now, but um, at this point, especially for um, especially for uh, David Livingston, who, I mean, we've seen this guy a million times when it comes to Star Trek. It's just weird that like he wrote this one random Deep Space Nine episode. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's It makes me wonder, actually, if it was maybe part of that magical Star Trek world that they had where, you know, actors are directing and directors are writing and it's kind of like everybody has a say in it. It makes me feel like it's maybe a little bit more open to uh, creativity suggestions and stuff that uh, maybe you wouldn't necessarily get on other shows. The thing I would say about in today, I think it's more that people who write uh, shows and have a, a, a large part in uh, write, doing the writing, sometimes we'll say, okay, I wrote this and I want it done a specific way, so I'm just going to direct it. Whereas right. here we have a very established director who is suddenly pitching a story. That's what I thought was kind of unusual. I, I think, I don't think it's unusual for writers, especially now, because even if you look at 
shows outside of Star Trek, uh, Mandalorian, uh, Dave Filoni and John Favreau jump into the director's chair, uh, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, uh, Vince Gilligan, and uh, who's the other, who's this like right-hand man? I forget the name, but there's another guy who is heavily involved in the writing and producing and every so often he'll jump in and direct as well. So right. um, I, I think it, I guess it, I find it kind of weird that a director who's an established director would be like pitching stories. Yeah, it's strange. What, what do you think of the idea that I suggested that maybe it was kind of, you know, any, any good idea is something that everyone will look at. Star Trek has always been very open to, you know, people kind of making the transitions. Maybe he just threw this idea out randomly one day in a around the coffee maker or a staff meeting or something, and they were like, "Yeah, you know what? Maybe we run with it." Well, yeah, and I mean, you're you're right. Like the fact that they were soliciting scripts from fans openly for for a long period of time, it's not. I, I guess it's not surprising that a, a you know someone who's sort of part of the inner circle would be able to do that. I just thought it was kind of interesting. You don't see that very often that a director is pitching story ideas. And definitely not during that period of time. Like, definitely not. Uh, now, the, the original idea was sort of this, like, meeting of criminal minds on the station. And I think when we were reviewing Emissary a little while back, we talked about how there was an idea sort of floating around that at some point they would have this sort of criminal element running amok on the station and that the crew would have to deal with that and i wonder if this was maybe sort of how they originally thought that maybe they could bring that into the show and i thought that was pretty cool but i guess they they decided to change it to a, a bunch of ferengi businessmen um, but apparently it would have included like all these aliens like romulans and klingons and vulcans and even some some new aliens making up this crime syndicate and i think that you know that would have been kind of cool to see. It's one of those ideas where you get the sense that they've done that before, but then if you've got the gun to the head, it's really hard to think of what specific episodes that we see that in. I actually kind of feel like it's rare to see multiple species interacting all the time. I mean, we get that classic Next Generation episode where they're all looking for the clues to the, you know, the mystery of the universe. And it's kind of uh, almost like a mad, 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 mad world kind of scenario. But an actual meeting of the minds where everybody's teamed up. I mean, I guess we do get to see that in... Uh, the final original series movie, like with the Federation and everything. But it's actually kind of hard. Like, I mean, can you think of any ideas where we really see a bunch of different species either teaming up or in a meeting or all in the same episode? There's that episode Gambit of The Next Generation where they're looking for that artifact, that ar that Vulcan artifact, where they had that ship, which was almost like a pirate ship, kind of. Yeah. And like they were all different aliens on that. But like they weren't familiar aliens, but they were all different. Right. Um, that's one that kind of comes to mind. It would have been interesting to see if they'd been, you know, brought together all these criminals from all these all different worlds and been like causing mischief on the station. I would be down for it. I feel like that could definitely be um an episode that uh that would be interesting for sure that being said i do like the frangie one as well like i do like the idea of gathering all the biggest names in the frangie alliance and strategizing for how they're going to tackle an entirely new galaxy to uh cover like it almost reminds me of maybe you know when when the european settlers made it over to the Western world, you know, was there a period of time where all the, the, the great economists sat down and, you know, kind of divvied up uh, how they were going to make as much money as possible? Probably, right? Like I can Probably. envision that happening. So um, I think that it's a, it's a great, a great link and a, gr a great idea for an episode. Well, yeah, it's not like they pivoted to something terrible. Like this was actually pretty, pretty interesting. And, um, that kind of leads into the next point, which is, um, you know, this is the episode where they, the, it was, I think, largely driven by Iris Stephen Bear, uh, the development of the rules of acquisition. And this is the first episode where we hear about it and hear any of the rules and also um, of the Grand Nagus. 
Um, so that's kind of neat because that becomes a pretty major part of the, the show uh, as we go forward. Yeah, it's not that we just get a rule of acquisition. We get the very first rule of acquisition, of course, which is... Once you have their money, never give it back. Yeah, did you think that was a good a good first rule of acquisition? Basically, no refunds, I mean, I guess is, is the joke. Uh, I thought that maybe it would be something a little bit more broad. Uh, you know, maybe about... I don't know. It's hard, it's hard to kind of think of them, but uh, do you like that as a first rule of acquisition, you know, rule number one? Yeah, why not? It's, uh, you know, that's a pretty common, you know, thing for an unscrupulous businessman, I would say. Ever give their money back? <laughs> I guess it's one of those things, too, where I pro- they probably didn't realize how big this was going to be, right? Um, it was, it, I, I, what they get up to? Like into the hundreds, I think, by the time the series was done. Well, there's 285. Now, we don't get all of them uh, right. by the end of the show. But yeah, there was there was tons and tons and tons that we heard quoted. Yeah, and I'm sure that Armin Shimmerman probably wrote a book on all of them. And Yeah, there is a book. Uh, one of my friends when I was a kid actually had the book. Okay, now do you think that if you were to follow the rules of acquisition that you would become a very wealthy person in our world? Or do you think that it's kind of one of those things where it's, uh, you know, it's it's make-believe. Like, it it actually is not good economic uh, advice. You might have a lot of money, but I think you'd be counting it alone. (laughs) See, that would be a good, uh, you know, some some sort of uh, rules for anti-acquisition. We start with this really secretive appearance there's like this hooded figure that like they're you know his people are walking through the station and they go to quarks which uh, i mean i understand why they do it because they don't want you to see it's this like super old ferengi who's got this you know staff with a big gold ferengi head statue on it um but was that kind of like do you did you think that was maybe a little over the top well, I'm stuck between a hard, rock and a hard place here, Matt, because I feel like when we did the Discovery episode uh, just a few weeks back and it was the big reveal to the Mirror Universe, I hammered it for being so overdrawn and cheesy and it was kind of a scenario where I, w- I kept thinking to myself like, okay, come on, let's get on with it. I don't mind this one. I kind of feel like for a teaser... It definitely builds just a little bit of uh, suspense. You know, you, you almost get a sense of like, remember Return of the Jedi when Luke shows up with the dark robes and everything at Jabba's palace? And then, of course, the joke is, is that it's going to be this old wrinkly guy and he's like some sort of weird leader of the Ferengi, which I don't think that they had ever mentioned to this point, like in the, any of the other series. Uh, it kind of does give a little bit of... A nice addition to that particular species. Like up until now, if you think of where they're at in 1993, they're basically villains of the week. And then you've got kind of Quark and Rom who are interesting, but they're shystery. This is like an interesting development. And so I got sold on it. I think it was a bit too long. I mean, if they'd like sort of wandered, if this, you know, the episode had started with the just like a you know, a busy night at Quark's and this like hooded figure sort of walks in and just like sits in the corner and, and they're sort of like, who's that? Who's that over there? And then they, you know, pull the hood off and realize who it is. That might have been a little bit better, but I thought I thought like walking him through the airlock and along the promenade and all that was a little bit much. I mean, I guess it is season one and they do want to show off the sets, but I mean, the giant muscle is probably a good enough in indication that this is going to be an important character. Everybody that we have seen that is royalty or important always has, you know, the Mr. Holmes and... Uh, the seven-footer. The seven-foot muscle, <laughs> you know. It's, uh, so when they're going through the promenade, you are you definitely get the sense like, oh, this is an important person. Uh, and then you get the stinger that it's the Grand Nagus. Uh, I, I like it enough, I guess. I'm kind of... Uh, I'm kind of on board with it, and I'm not a huge Ferengi person, but I do like that there is a leader and that he's basically the greediest of all. That's what makes him the best, you know? (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, the greediest of them all. That's a funny way of putting it. Now, do you have a golden Ferengi head in your 
collection of Star Trek memorabilia, or is that like a uh, you know get get later kind of thing? Uh, that one's pretty low on the list. I'm not a huge. <laughs> I like the kind of comedy that we get from the Ferengi, but as far as like the culture and all that, and it's not my favorite. Yeah, you don't you don't make your partner like uh, be naked all the time, and uh, you know you don't uh, screw your family over left and right just for to make a quick buck. Like that's not really your mo. I would wouldn't say so. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now we th- there was one part of this that kind of made little sense to me, and that's poor Mister O'Brien, who has somehow been roped into being the substitute teacher at the uh, school. When uh, I guess Keiko was off on, I, I don't know if they actually said, I can't remember. What 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 did, what did poor Mr. O'Brien do to like deserve had to have to deal with a bunch of like unruly uh, children at the school? Uh, that's the downside of being like the chief petty officer, right? He actually is, he's just really low ranked when you actually think about it in a Star Trek <laughs> world where you know number of pips means a lot he is doesn't even have a pip right he's just got like the little black magnet or whatever that thing is that he gets on his right so i guess that's the reason or maybe this is you know he, he forgot valentine's day and this is the punishment maybe i don't know <laughs> miles you didn't get me red red roses like i told you to you have to teach while i'm gone as somebody who is a teacher by profession and definitely went through the years and years of substitute teaching to kind of break in in my early days, uh, I definitely empathize. <laughs> it's not it's not fun and it's not easy. So uh, I feel like uh, I do appreciate and I do like that, you know, even if you go hundreds of years in the future, students are still rascally and they still don't get their homework done like where I work, one of the one of the things that we always kind of laugh about is that students will always die with the lie. So, you know, they'll lie about something and then you catch them dead to rights and then they just lie deeper and dig deeper and dig deeper. And so when we get this kind of Nog O'Brien <laughs> showdown where he's like, oh, the Vulcans stole my paper on ethics. Why is that? Uh, because they have no ethics. <laughs> that is 100% real. <laughs> 100% real. I have literally had conversations exactly like that. Uh, so I think that that was, uh, yeah, that was hilarious. That was really well done. So the the Nog, uh, like the Star Trekian equivalent of the dog ate my homework here. It's yeah, like exactly. the Vulcan stole Just... my... I thought it was pretty funny. Like, and, and that's a pretty clever remark. Like, well, why would they steal your pad? And he's like, cause they don't have ethics. <laughs> like it's pretty smart alecky, which is, I always like it's smart so alecky kind of teenagery. stuff. That's the thing that's so good about it. They just nailed dealing with teenagers. They don't, they're not smart enough to come up with a smart lie. So they just double down on the bad lie. I love it. Absolutely love it. Now that leads to the next point, which I, I wanted to just talk about this kind of broadly. Um, but we get, you know, we get that like Jake Nog moment where like O'Brien's giving him the business because his homework isn't done. And he like tells the lie and he's like, well, but Jake was there. And he sort of turns around and he's like, come on, tell him, tell yeah, him. Yeah, collaborate my lie. Right? And, and Jake like reluctantly is like, yeah, yeah, they were there. They stole it. And like, it's so obviously a lie. And it like it makes no sense, but O'Brien's like, well, I guess if Jake says so, like I can't call him a liar, or else I'm gonna be stuck cleaning the waste extraction for the next six months, you know, because <laughs> my boss is his dad. Puts you on the spot. Do you not have friends that are like that as well? You know, like the friend that always needs the ride, the friend that always needs to borrow the money. Like, do, don't you kind of feel like, like, do you have any friends like that or have had friends in the past? I certainly have had friends. Yeah. Everybody has. That's the beauty of it, right? Like everybody knows that, you know, you've got that one friend who, you know, you got to bail out, you got to help out, but you know, he's a fun time on Friday night. So you, you know, you keep him around. Like, I think that they really kind of nailed it. And I, I mean, obviously the Jake and Nog relationship really kind of goes up and down and up and down throughout the series. But I mean, it is, it is a great one. One that maybe is not mentioned enough when you talk about, you know, Seven and the Doctor and Bashir and O'Brien, like Jake Nog friendship is actually a really great one and a really sweet one. Well, yeah, and you mentioned that it goes up and down. It goes up and down even in this episode. 
Oh yeah, definitely. You know, they they have that. Well, yeah, we were gonna. I was gonna get into this a little later on, but you know, they have their disagreement, and they're like, "Well, I don't want to be your friend anymore." And they're like, "Fine, okay, we're not friends anymore." And then it ends up uh, not ending that way. How many friends have that happened to you with too? We're not, well, especially exactly. when you're in when you're in high school and elementary school. You have friends that are mad at you. You don't know why they're mad, and you're. It's like that. They just did a great job. I I, I really think that. Uh, one of the, it's, it's surprising it's this early but I, I definitely can appreciate how well they write the characters right from season one imagine having like facebook when you were a teenager like your oh, friend God. number the number of friends on your list like that would probably change on a daily basis 100 <laughs> percent. Uh, i noticed a few cool little details uh sort of in the first little bit of this episode the first one that i noticed was uh there's that scene in Ops, and uh, O'Brien is just, like, randomly fixing the turbo lift because it, like, had stopped, like, halfway, which we we see, like, occasionally just kind of as, like, a joke, and he's just, like, in there fixing it. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, I, I feel like fixing elevators is probably... Uh, I mean, I've seen enough horror movies where people get cut in half or heads knocked off or whatever. I don't know that I would be... I wouldn't be volunteering for that, but this is during the time, I guess, right, where the joke is is that the Starfleet tech doesn't match with the Cardassian tech, and that's a big reason why they're always fixing stuff. So I do like that that's kind of holding true. Yeah, I thought it was funny. And then the other one that I liked uh, was when the Nagus is in Quark's quarters and they're having dinner, and he has, like, that lazy Susan that was, like, the size of the table, and it was, yeah. like like three levels high it's like the laziest the laziest susan of them all yeah because it had like uh, the whole meal in it and like you just sort of like progressed from like one section to the next and once you were done you just like spun it a quarter turn and went to the next one it kind of reminded me of um i don't think they have them in canada but you always see them on sitcoms and movies is it benihana's where the sushi comes on like the little conveyor belt i don't know the actual name for it but i know what you mean yeah it's like a conveyor belt and you just sort of grab what you want as it goes by grab what you want as it kind of goes around and around and around that's what it reminded me of a little bit like almost like a a personalized version of that i need to get one of those yeah exactly (laughs) okay so then we get this meeting of the ferengi like zek is like uh I need to use your bar for a meeting or whatever. And Quark is like, oh, I'm only too happy to host a a meeting. And so all these like supposedly, you know, major players in the Ferengi Alliance uh, show up on the station. And of course, Odo is immediately suspicious when like, you know, more than two Ferengi show up at one time. And um, in this meeting, they're talking about all their business opportunities in the Gamma Quadrant. And then, you know, Zek shocks everyone and you know names quark to be the next grand magus how how zany is that yeah i wish that this was a little bit more thunderball-ish uh for those of you that are james bond fans where the leader was maybe a bit more ominous a bit more serious a little bit more dark maybe um do you know the scene i'm talking about in thunderball i think it's probably one of the most famous movie scenes ever right where they're going over all the profits and then one of the one of the underlings has uh has embezzled money away and of course he hits the button and gets electrified like i don't think i want to go that far but i kind of feel like i wish that the nagus was maybe like up a little bit and everybody was kind of throwing out their ideas and he was kind of just going through taking his cut uh, that and may, maybe even alluding to the fact that the Grand Nagus really isn't a genius or anything, but he just really is in a position where he gets so many taxes on everybody else's earnings that he's just so super duper uber rich. I I don't know. Like I feel like we could have got a little bit more here. Uh, it's a forty-five minute show, so I mean you can't you can't have a twenty-minute scene where they're. Like, I mean, maybe not 20 minutes, but 10 minutes or whatever. So, yeah, I it was it was kind of a weird conference to me because they're talking about how, like, it's a whole different place. They've never heard of Ferengi. They don't know our reputation. And it's almost like they're like insulting themselves by sort of 
talking about how oh we can like totally exploit them they won't see it coming because we're so bad but we you know and but everyone around here knows that we're bad and that we're gonna cheat them and i thought it was kind of a weird thing for them to be talking about like to talk themselves about themselves in that way and it made them seem like they weren't very good at business at all right if they had blown all their relationships that made it seem maybe that that wasn't a good idea because nobody trusts them and that's actually kind of the way that they're seen well, there's that famous scene in the Voyager pilot where uh, Ensign Kim is like, they warned us about Ferengi at the Academy. Yeah, exactly. So who's going to really be working with them and, and, and making deals with them and stuff in the future? I mean, I guess that is in line with their shystery ways, right? Like they're more likely to to try to get like a ransom from kidnapping somebody than to set up like honest business. Deep Space Nine kind of wanted to make them a little bit more legitimate business people, which I think I like better. They're much more interesting when they're, you know, sort of strictly businessmen rather than like kind of petty, well, not petty, but like criminals that try to profit off of, you know, doing bad things. Yeah, and I mean, I wish that they were just like stone cold capitalists and this kind of bickering and, and and like silliness doesn't play for me. It doesn't resonate as well as if they were just cutthroat, money at all cost. I feel like that is kind of a, a way to show them that would be a bit more interesting. But I still like this scene. It's kind of fun. Yeah. And so in the aftermath, the Ferengi that were sort of at this meeting and, and were a little bit chagrined or shocked that Quark was made Grand Nagus... I mean, some of them kind of like sucked up to him and was like, uh, oh, you know, like, let me have, you know, this area to deal with and I'll I'll cut you in for some of the profits. And then the one guy like basically like walks along with him, puts his arm around him and then basically like threatens to kill him in, you know, in a kind of subversive kind of way. I thought it was kind of interesting how they reacted so very differently. Yeah, that was a little too mirror university for me. <laughs> that to me is not the way that the Ferengis would necessarily go. I prefer, you know, putting them out of business or, or running them out of Dodge or, you know, some sort of coup to undercut his profit. I don't know if I like the idea of, oh, that guy's the Nagus? Yeah, I'll just kill him and become the Nagus. I think that that doesn't fit in line with how I want the Ferengi to be. And eventually I think it gets slightly better, but that was my thought. I think it's in line with the notion that Ferengi are supposed to be devious because... But devious and murderous is kind of two different stories. I mean, you got to remember these are like supposed to be like big, big time businessmen. So who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe they're just that unscrupulous that they would actually kill somebody. But I mean, it's in it's in line with the devious sort of aspect of, of the Ferengi, I think, anyway. And I mean, I guess it is one of those things where this is still not that long after the, the next generation Ferengi, which were like the whip yielding total villain, the, right? The energy whips. Yeah, that was kind of an interesting choice for a, a weapon. <laughs> yeah. But all in all, what were your thoughts kind of on, just as the meeting as a whole? Is this boring to you or do you feel like this is... Uh... Well, I think it kind of gives us an idea of where they wanted to go with the Ferengi and what sort of, you know, characteristics they wanted to give them in, in Deep Space Nine. Because, uh, like you say, like in Next Generation, we don't really get a lot as far as culture and anything. We just know that they're out there to make money, but we don't really know much about... Uh, you know, their ethics or their code of conduct. And we get a lot of that in this meeting, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, agreed. Anytime that we get new, you know, cultural pieces, I'm all about it. All right, let's uh, just jump back to the Jake and Nog uh, sort of uh, side story here. Now they have their, this disagreement after Nog is uh, pulled away, pulled out of school by his father. And, you know, they're like, oh, I don't want to talk to you anymore. And the other person's like, okay, fine. We're not friends anymore. And then, you know, they end up in the end, they end up sort of sitting at that railing where they always seem to be in the first few seasons, just bored and hanging out, like literally hanging out. <laughs> and uh, they end up deciding, oh, you know what? Let's be friends after all, you know? Who cares about 
you know, our cultural differences, we'll figure them out. Um, how relatable is this? I feel like I can think of numerous times in my youth where I got into a, you know, an argument or a disagreement with someone and I didn't want to be their friend anymore. And then in the end, you end up being their best pal. Yeah, no, 100%. I was actually just thinking like you and I have been friends for, Jesus, what would it be? 15, 18 years now? Close, close to 20 years. Close yeah. to 20 years. I, I'm, believe. I'm, I'm wondering, has this, have we ever had such a bad disagreement that, uh, you know, we had to go our separate ways and then come back? I think maybe when you said that you liked the movie Star Trek Into Darkness, that was probably when I was like, Matt, I can't <laughs> just, I can't do it. I'm not friends with you anymore. Had to go and, <laughs> you know, take a walk away, came back later and uh, accepted you for your you know, obviously wrong beliefs, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's more of a younger person thing. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were, we've been kind of friends since what high school, but I think that this is kind of more grade school level disagreement. And then especially the, uh, having it, you know, be resolved so quickly. That is totally grade school. Yeah. That's what I would say as well. Yeah. This is something that happens when you're, you know, 10 years old or 12 years old and, yeah, yeah, like I, I thought this was great just because um, it was sort of a cultural thing, right? And I liked that the and there's another scene that will that I just that I'll we'll touch on a little later on, where it, it it's like, you know, getting past cultural differences, and this is a very clever way of doing it because you've got a human and, you know, a Ferengi with the giant ears, and um, I really liked that that sort of aspect to this storyline. Yeah, it's something that we didn't really talk about a whole lot, but one of the things that uh, is is brought up quite a bit is just the fact that, you know, humans and Ferengi have never been friends. And Cisco even says that they're, these, these are two cultures that are really never closely made relationships with. And so this is one of the very first human Ferengi friendships that we, we see as, as we move forward. I actually thought it was a little strange that at one point O'Brien even goes to Cisco and is like, yeah, you know that Ferengi kid? Maybe you shouldn't let your son hang out with him. That, to me, doesn't really resonate Star Trek. I get it, and, and it's totally 100% something that was existed in the 90s and in the 60s and today but i don't know that star trek should be maybe doing those kinds of things did you did you think that's like literally the you know the, the same thing as you know black white asian uh muslim like in our society is that what they were playing out there i think it was just playing on you know cultural differences in general i don't know if they were trying to pick on two specific ones that maybe don't associate with each other often i think it was just them trying to say like we have our values and and culture and we may have we may encounter another one that's totally different and we shouldn't just discount being like associating with them because they're different i think we need to look look deeper and and be willing to make make those differences work in order to you know have a, a friendship you know, like it, it, it you know, those, these two guys are Jake and Nog. They're two teenagers on a space station, which and there's probably not a lot of other teenagers just kind of hanging around for them to be friends with. So put put your differences aside and, and make it work, I think, is just sort of what the message is here. Did you ever have like did, in your childhood, did you ever have your parents kind of sit you down and say like, oh, that kid that you're hanging around, he's kind of a bad egg, you know, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you shouldn't really be hanging out with them or, you know, maybe you should spend more time with this person or that person. I mean, I know I didn't I don't think I ever had that, but I kind of remember my sister hanging out with like some less than favorable people and my parents being like, really, you know, maybe you should hang out with these kind of people. Like, did that ever happen to you growing up? I don't think so. I think there are maybe some people that I hung around with that my parents weren't crazy about but they never outright sat me down and was like don't hang out with these kids they're bad you know you'd say like oh i'm gonna go downtown to the record store with so and so and so and so they'd be like oh well okay if that's what you want to do <laughs> but you could kind of tell that they didn't really want me to be doing that with with you know hanging around with those people but they didn't really outright uh tell me like no don't hang out with that 
with that kid. So can you imagine your parents be getting like the O'Brien uh, talk? You know, oh, I don't know. Maybe maybe you should find some new friends. It's important. <laughs> I, I I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That, that scene was a bit. It was a bit unsettling, but I think at the same time, O'Brien was like just felt legitimately like that was a concern. I think. I think he was trying to do the right thing, but he it was eh, not not the greatest thing to be doing. It is interesting that we get that kind of in the second, like the secondary story. I mean, the main story it doesn't necessarily maybe have as much weight as that kind of interesting relationship between Jake and Nog. I mean, I guess Zek is the one who tells Rom to pull him out of school and stuff like that. But what are your kind of thoughts on like Zek dying and um, this whole elaborate plot to, I mean, I guess test his son. Well, yeah. So he dies. Was, wasn't he like in the, he was like in the middle of talking to Quark about something. And then he just like, his head's kind of drooped down and they're like, Oh my God, he's dead. Yeah. It's, it's like the classic, you know, he's taking the medicine to make him look dead or something, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he dies and then, yeah. And, and in the end, it turns out to be this plot to, you know, to test his, his son to see if his son is re- ready to take over for him if it when he he does pass on i don't know i thought it was kind of an interesting way to test him uh like to actually fake his death and to see what he does it's a very ferengi thing to do i think because it's pretty devious and it's pretty pretty you know it's an it's a scheme to 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 test somebody without them knowing so i mean i thought it was i thought it was you know i thought it was a decent kind of story but what if Quark had actually been killed in that, like, uh, you know, assassination attempt? And then Zek, like, comes to, is like, oh, it's just messing with you guys. You know, it wasn't real. That could have been all. Oh, by the way, Quark's dead. <laughs> yeah, that could have been really bad. Yeah, I love that scene where Quark is, like, hilariously uh, spared from a certain death. Because apparently there's, like, Ferengi locator bomb. Like, it never misses. Right. It's like you know it always works and he like he only survives because he like bends over to pick up like a coin as it like goes flying past his head and then into the wall and blows up i thought that was pretty funny and a pretty fitting way for quark to be uh to be saved from from this uh you know deadly weapon yeah no it was uh that's cool it's too bad we never see the locator bombs ever again that's kind of a cool assassination tool you know maybe they'll use it in uh, star trek discovery or picard or something Yeah, maybe bring back the locator bomb i would not be opposed to that i would say that would be something i would be down for so um yeah i mean the big assassination attempt and and this whole kind of ferengi thing this is kind of for me the spot where it's eh I'm not, I mean, it's okay, but I, I don't think that I love it. For me, it's, it, this is where it starts to lose me a little bit. I thought it was still pretty, pretty interesting Okay. Uh, at this point. Because then there's this whole like, well, who did it? Who Who's trying to kill him? Yeah, so I mean, it's, I thought it was still, I hadn't, it hadn't lost me at all at this point. Uh, we get this really nice, classic Dax Cisco scene where Dax just sort of wanders in. I'm not, I don't remember why she was like paying him a visit. And she like sits, she, as she's talking to him, she like sits down at the table and she's like, Oh, what'd you cook for dinner? And like starts like scooping it out or whatever onto a plate. And then she like gives the advice and Ben and Cisco leaves. And then she just like keeps on eating. I thought that was pretty funny. I guess this is still trying to establish, right? Like these guys are close friends and, you know, their relationship is such that you can just kind of wander in to, and, and, and stay around when they're gone, you know, it's... And eat all their food. Eat all their food. Like, it doesn't really matter. It's just energy. Well, yeah. But yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of, I, I do like that scene. And again, it's, I, I like the, that the, the, there's no wasted scenes. Every scene at least builds the characters a little bit. Um, this one kind of shows the Dax Ben relationship. We get that sage advice from like the young woman telling the older person, but the gimmick is that it's actually the butt or the the worm inside. I like that. Yeah, lots of good character bits here. Although I don't know if I necessarily agree with the Rom character. I know that um, you kind of mentioned in your notes that it's completely out of character that Rom would scheme 
with cracks to kill Quark? Like, did you, like, were you kind of, I was at the same thing. I was, like, scratching my head, like, wait, what? I guess they didn't really have the the ROM character figured out at this point or something? Uh, no, they definitely didn't. And I think that's part of the reason why. Like, if you think about, you know, from Emissary to this in the, whatever, 11 episodes, we don't really get anything I don't even know that it is Rom in the early episodes. Yeah, exactly. And like we know that he's just like a guy that works in the bar and, and I I maybe by this point we know he's Quark's brother. I'm not sure. But we don't really know much else. And so, I mean, the, the, us saying that it's incredibly out of character is like in hindsight because we know that later on he's sort of portrayed as this kind of dim-witted. Like he's smart with fixing things and with engineering and whatnot, but he's not the smartest, like as far as a Ferengi goes, because he's not a business savvy kind of guy. So yeah, this was a little bit odd watching it now, having seen all of the Deep Space Nine episodes several times. It kind of makes you wonder, like, how did he go from like being devious enough to plot his brother's death to, you know, lowly engineer who is just like fixing stuff all the time, but not much else. Yeah, and I mean, that's it's one of those things you just kind of have to omit, I guess, from your brain because you can't really expect it to be perfect when it's so early on, right? I, I To me, I almost just kind of just delete it from my memory because uh, <laughs> I feel like it's just, it's like a oops, you know? Like they just didn't have it perfectly done ahead of time. Yeah, I think that's really the only way you can think about it. I mean, I guess I guess if you're kind of trying to reconcile all this to make it make sense, you could always just think of it as just Rom was just some other Ferengi that was... Yes, exactly, which is, is what it really kind of feels like. Yeah, exactly. Like, you could just sort of insert generic Ferengi here who's disgruntled for some reason and who decided to, you know, team up with Cracks to to knock knock off Quark. So the, the, the last little bit here, the big sort of shocking ending, uh, Quark gets like lured into an airlock and they're like just about to like press the button to like blow him out into space and Zek is like alive and he's there and he's like, release him in that voice that I know you love. Uh, and there, everyone's all like, oh my God, he's alive. What happened? And then they, you know, they, they explain it. I think he was in like some sort of, induced trance that made him look like he was dead as you do right like that's such a sitcom kind of thing but <laughs> again it's one of those things if he had showed up 30 seconds later 30 seconds later and he's like hey guys i'm actually alive and they're like uh we just like put cork out in space he's dead again do we it's funny like if this was star trek discovery i feel like we would be just ripping it and and just giving it the business but for whatever reason it's just like it just doesn't bother me as much i don't know why it's nostalgia perhaps well he's just like so old that he knows his son so well he knows exactly what he's gonna do and he planned it to <laughs> like that's kind of how you have to look at it i guess I, I guess that's the case but i guess it's one of those things where yeah after all this time i feel like we do give it some we give it a wider berth. I do anyway. I, I know that, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, do you, do you, like, if this was in Star Trek Discovery, this exact thing, would you chew it apart or no? None of this stuff even occurred to me as I was watching it that, like, oh, if if he had, like, miscalculated what his son was going to do, like, Quark probably would have been dead. You know, like, I wasn't really thinking about that as I was watching this. So I don't know if I'd rip it. In a different series. Do you think this is even like a realistic tr test of Zek's son? Like, it's so elaborate and it's just so... Like, couldn't they have just made him like the vice president of operations or something and seen if he had screwed this up? Do you really need this elaborate thing where you're going to go to the space station, you're going to pretend that you're dead, and you're going to make somebody else the Negus, and then... You know, you're, you're going to bring everybody in to kind of set up everything for this big uh, business venture. But then it's all just a big ploy to test your son. Like, uh, I don't know. Like, that is the one hole in the episode. It's just that it's maybe a little bit too, it's a little bit too much of a stretch. It was a plan that could have gone very wrong. Right. And even even though it went right, I wonder if it's like, was it really worth it? I mean, he did learn that his son was not devious in the way that he would have wanted 
Because remember there was that thing where he was like, you should have just like, you know, sat in the background and been listening and gathering information. And then like when the time was right, you spring in and, you know, profit immeasurably. And, and I, I don't know, I guess in that sense, I guess it did work. But yeah, your, your punishment is you'll never be in another episode again. Yeah. Yeah. It was a bit of a zany plan, I guess, but it, I don't know. He, I guess in the end, it did kind of work the way he was hoping. Like, did this Cracks guy ever show up again? Nope. Yeah, see, like, that to me is just... Zek was so disgusted with him, he was like, you will never be on this show ever again. Yeah, and that was it. He was done and dusted. So, yeah, yeah, a good first Nagus appearance, but definitely wasn't polished, I guess is what we'll say. All right, Andrew, this is probably going to be one of your favorite parts. Uh, how much did you dislike the Grand Nagus? I know you're not a big fan of Zek. Uh, how tough was it for you to slog through this episode? This, if if the Nagus had never shown up again, I probably would probably, I would be in the camp of just like, oh yeah, kind of annoying, but whatever. Um, I think that even Wallace Shawn has come out and said that if he had known that this was going to be a character that returned for however many seasons that he probably wouldn't have done the super annoying voice. Like he thought it was just going to be a one-off comedy bit at this stage. It's fine. I, I actually don't have that much trouble with it. Um, I think that it's yeah, it, it's okay. Um, but that being said, the Nagus going forth is just atrocious. Um, and one of the things, I don't know if you know a lot about Wallace Shawn, but he does a ton of voice work. Like he was Rex in uh, Toy Story and he was in Monster Inc. And he, he can do, if you can imagine a voice, he can do the voice. And I just think that it's really just that. If he had done a better voice for this, I think it would have been night and day. Um, especially since like, I mean, you never see the sun again. Rom completely changes. Like, if the Nagus had shown up in the future and his voice was just different, would it have been the end of the world? Um, I think that that was probably the thing that ends up really kind of waning on me over the time. Um, at this stage of the game, though, it's not too bad. You don't, you don't like the laugh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know what? Again, it's <laughs> it's one of those things where, you know, in one episode, it's fine. But then some of those later ones, oh my goodness gracious, like they are just painful to watch and so yeah i'll give it a pass but like a 50 percent pass the voice is very distinctive and so i don't i don't really dislike the voice i think it's funny and i think it's distinctive when i heard that laugh the first time i was like oh yeah i almost kind of forgot about that like really that really ob obnoxious laugh but I, I don't really mind the voice that much I don't know. I don't. I don't. I didn't really find the Nagus in general over the course of the series to be that annoying or bad. Okay. Well, we're gonna have to pull out another Nagus video later to maybe kind of change one of one of our two minds. We'll see what we can do. Maybe we should get the Mirror Universe one. Oh yeah. Then we can then we can knock a few uh, major uh, dis topics of discussion off at once. Yes, no doubt. All right, one other interesting sort of casting note here. Lee Ehrenberg, who played uh, Grawl, which is the Ferengi that, you know, sort of subversively threatened to kill Quark. Yeah, Quark's best friend. Yeah. At first. Well, he, he said he would like to be Quark's best friend. He was played by Lee Ehrenberg, who has been in a few different uh, Star Trek episodes. He's played a number of Ferengi, actually. He actually played two different characters in Star Trek named Grawl, if you can believe that. What are the odds? Uh, yeah, when I was watching this, and I heard them him call the Ferengi, Nate, like the, the, the first time someone referred to him as Grawl, I was like, no, wait a minute. Like, I knew Lee Ehrenberg played a, a Tellarite in Enterprise, and I was pretty sure, and I was pretty sure that his name was Grawl, and I was like, did he play two characters named Grawl? Yeah. That's crazy. He played a character named Prack in Next Generation, Pelk in Voyager, and Grawl in Enterprise and Deep Space Nine. Um, wow, that is a deep cut trivia from Matt this week. Holy smokes. Yeah, don't ask me how I remembered the name of that Tellarite or that Lee Ehrenberg played him. I have no idea how I remember that. It just, I mean, that popped right into my head as I was watching. I wrote it down. Yeah, that's next level, man. 
it's fine. It's just a background Ferengi character. It, there's like a weird, almost cult-like kind of following. All the Ferengis, we've talked about it before, but like Armin Shimmer was like the lead Ferengi and he'd have everybody over for these parties and they would talk and they would party and do all these things. And yeah, it's it's interesting that they always kind of bring back the same people. I think maybe because Ferengis are kind of shorter than the average person. So if there are actors that are shorter, they tend to maybe like fall into these roles. Maybe I could have been a Ferengi. I'm kind of shorter than average. Maybe. I just was maybe born a little bit too late. I missed my acting window. Well, I would imagine it's it's useful to use the same actors as well because of the makeup. Um, like that's pretty, I mean, it's basically a full head, right? Like the back part and the you know the, the the ears and the the nose and all that like i mean it, it's covering up most of your head so i feel like if you're gonna you know make the the prosthetics or whatever for for one per for uh for an actor you might might as well get as much use out of them as you can you just use the same one over and over again maybe like lee Ehrenberg because he played like multiple ferengi like maybe they just were like here hold on to these ears until in case we need you to come back in a couple of years and like sent him home with it <laughs> All right, let's hit some production notes, Matt, because there's some interesting ones here with just the some different links, a couple of um, a couple of quirk ones. Um, I guess that this is supposed to kind of be like a little homage to the Godfather. Yeah, that one scene was. I haven't seen. I have to make a confession here. I've never seen the Godfather, believe it or not. It's on my list. Uh, it it will be it will be watched by my eyes at some point in the next little while. But yeah, that one scene was like blatant. Even I knew that oh, was... Oh, very much so, yeah. Even the gold staff, like I don't think that's necessary from Godfather. Like, I think it's like that. the kiss the ring thing is definitely stuff that they've seen in movies. But this time it's the golden staff. And I guess they just used like Cork's head for this because that would just maybe be easier in the future or they could just use a toy or something. Did you feel like it was Corkish? Well, they apparently the prop people like it was originally sculpted to resemble Armin Shimmerman's quark. I don't know if you really get a good enough look at it to really make a judgment call about whether it actually does look like him, but I guess that was the intention and I don't know if that was, you know, as if to say like okay, he becomes the Grand Nagus, so like we put a new like thing on the top of it that looks like him. I don't know if that's what they were going for or not. Uh yeah, well, that's kind of a neat little little piece of trivia. Um, this one, I guess, is pretty well received, um, and led to more Ferengi episodes. Um, yeah, great. I'm really glad that that ended up happening, but do you think this is funny? I mean, I know the Ferengi are supposed to be funny. I'm not really, like, belly laughing. It's just kind of like, eh, I don't know. Is this funny to you or not? Certain parts of it were a little bit funny, but I think that there are definitely Ferengi episodes that come along later on that are much more blatantly attempts at comedy oh, yes magnificent ferengi and stuff like the, yeah the, that's the one that i think everyone thinks of immediately because that's that one is pretty out there as far as ferengi comedy goes <laughs> well and definitely something that somebody thought was funny was Morn definitely thought that that uh quark, quark joke was funny because it is the only time that i think we ever see him do anything he laughs in this one and so I think I remember reading there was like a German cut scene where he said something, but I think this is probably the closest we ever get to Morn talking. Um, we get to see him laugh, which is kind of cool. It's the only time that we hear any sort of vocalization from Morn and he was laughing. Cool. I like it. Yeah. So there's a trivia, trivia question you can impress your friends with. The only time that Morn makes a vocalization in the series. The Nagus. So write that one down. Memorize it for your next, uh, you know, Star Trek theme party. All right. Um, any memorable scenes? And uh, is there a quote or two that you uh, that stuck out with you? I think that I'm just going to have to do the cheesy thing and I'm just going to take the first rule of acquisition, right? It's a big Ferengi episode. We get the rules of acquisition that isn't being huge. So um, although I don't necessarily know that I follow it myself, I will take the first rule of acquisition, which is once you have their money, don't give it back. Okay. Um, and yourself? Memorable scenes. Uh, I'm tempted to say the conference or the, the, the trade meeting because... For me, that's kind of relatable because I, I, I mean, I don't have, I don't work a job where I'm in a lot of meetings, but I feel like that one felt very much like how your, you know, business meetings tend to go. So that one is like, it was kind of like, it was almost a little bit kind of too real to me. 
Um, and and we also sort of get a first look at like the the Ferengi culture and how they do business and all this this sort of stuff. So that one kind of stuck out to me, I guess. As far as lines, uh, there was one that uh, I thought was really funny. Uh, so so in the beginning when uh, Zek was in the hollow suite when he when he comes out, uh, Crax is like, uh, you know, my 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 father needs to you know lie down. He needs rest. He needs somewhere that he can go and and have some rest. And and Quark says, please feel free to use my own brother's quarters as long as you're <laughs> with us. I thought that was pretty pretty funny how he uh, you know spur of the moment volunteered Rom's uh, quarters for the the Nagus to to have some rest. Very funny. Very clever. Uh, okay, sum up uh, your final thoughts on this episode and uh, give me a rating out of five bars of gold press latinum. Yeah, it's decent, right? Like, it's it's a good episode of Deep Space Nine, especially for season one. It's nothing crazy, amazing good. It's nothing crazy, amazing bad. It's right down the middle. It's three out of five gold press latinum bars. It is... Um, yeah, it's, it's okay. I, I don't have much to say. Um, I was actually surprised that I didn't have more because I feel like it was going to be worse than it was, but it was okay. I, I thought it was all right. Okay. Being the first season you always, of Deep Space Nine, you always kind of expect it to be kind of iffy. I mean, there's very few first season episodes that I would say are very good or like crazy good classics. But this one was definitely tolerable. Uh, there's some good... They lay the groundwork for the sort of Ferengi culture that they, you know, follow throughout the series in this episode. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, the the murder plot or the assassination plot was, was, you know, intriguing enough. I mean, it wasn't like some big crazy mystery that took up the whole episode, but it was kind of neat. And just sort of the look at Ferengi power dynamics and, you know, you have the Nagus and then all these people are scheming and whatever to to try and take his place or to try to work with him to, to for their own profit. Um, and I thought the Jake Nog stuff uh, in the background was, was really good too. So um, I'm kind of stuck between three and four, but I think I'm just going to give this one a three because... It was good. It wasn't hard to get through, but I, I think, uh, you know, there's, you know, it was good. I, I, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't like super classic or anything like that. All right. I think I hear the red alert siren, which means it is time to uh, reach into the uh, Ferengi hood of episodes and grab a brand new episode for us to uh, watch and talk about in our next podcast. Uh, Andrew, what are you thinking here? You got any uh, special? Uh... No, no requests this year. I'll take whatever Santa brings me. All right. Okay. I think you will be somewhat impressed with this one. So uh, we are back to the USS Voyager. Okay. And it's a, uh, it's sort of a later one. It's from season six. It is episode 20. And the title is Good Shepherd. Okay. Yeah, I think I got that. I think I I think I can do that one. You think you remember that one? Yeah, I don't have a piece of paper with me today, so I'm just going to have to go off the cuff, my friend. All right, Andrew is uh, just going to go uh, completely by the seat of his pants here. I'm just going to quickly put one minute on the clock here. And Andrew can tell me everything he remembers from Good Shepherd. Are you ready? I think so. Okay, your time begins now. All right, this is basically like Lower Decks Voyager style, I want to say. Uh, Janeway finds that there's three people, two guys and a girl that she doesn't know or who has never interacted with. Um, one guy's kind of begrudgent, one's a bit of a suck-up, and the girl is kind of like a, a little bit... Uh, space spastic spacey uh, kind of thing uh so janeway decides you know what the best way to integrate them is to take them out on a mission and so she takes them out on a mission it's a disaster there's like an invisible alien that maybe like injures the begrudging guy like really badly and he's like see this is why you just go and work on the ship like he just kind of wanted to live like a blue collar kind of um of life on the ship um they do kind of make some 
steps in the right direction. And I think Janeway kind of accepts the fact that like, you know what, these guys are probably just wanting to work their jobs and get home. They're not that gung ho about it. And so I don't really know where Good Shepherd comes from, but um, I think that the whole episode is really just kind of about these three underlings that work like literally in the like. All right. Uh, you went a little bit over, but um, yeah, I think you're definitely on the right track. Yeah, this is an episode about kind of three crew members who were kind of had kind of like fallen through the cracks a little bit. And like, you know, one of them was working like on the very bottom deck of the ship, like just in a room by himself. And um, yeah, likes Janeway, it, right? Janeway decides to, you know, kind of take them under her wing a little bit, try and boost their confidence a bit by taking them on a mission. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, this is one that I seem to remember being pretty good. Okay. Well, uh, I won't probably uh, see you until Christmas and I guess now even probably New Year's. So uh, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy holidays, everybody, to you out in Star Trek land. Keep enjoying Star Trek Discovery. It's going to be over before we know it. And so will 2020. And uh, let's face it, there's going to be nobody complaining about that. Yeah, most definitely. Yes. Thanks to all our listeners for uh making 2020 as good as we can and uh i hope you enjoy the holiday season and have a wonderful new year and we will see you in 2021 bye-bye everybody so long folks this show is brought to you by hollow sweet media Computer. List other available Holosuite media programs. Loading Holosuite preview program for Boldly Go, a Star Trek Strange New Worlds podcast. It's too much effort and I'm busy. I gotta get this done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had stuff to do. He had logs to plant. He had a ship to take over. <laughs> he had an entire plot to uh, to fill out and make everyone think that he needed to have a trial for mutiny <laughs> because that will distract everyone long enough for them to get to Talos Four. He's busier than Prince Humperdinck. Loading Hollowsweet preview program for Starpod Trek, a podcast exploring Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. So we're seeing that the early Star Trek conventions were were a nice balance between science fiction and real world science. And that was cool because that, because a lot of uh, Star Trek fans are interested in science, and a lot of, and I mean all of those um, science guests that were there probably were Star Trek fans, and and they they probably even said that that they got into to science because of their love of Star Trek. Loading Hollowsweet preview program for the Vedic Assembly. A Deep Space Nine podcast. We don't know what that Cardassian technology is, but it could, yeah. Do we need to know? No, nah. we don't need to right, know. Just some yeah. bit of... Self-stealing, self-sealing stem bolts. Yes, it wants those self-sealing stem bolts. And Somebody wants them. Because self-sealing, you guys. Yes. I mean, it's not just a regular stem bolt. <laughs> I don't know why you don't get why these are so valuable. Okay. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.